It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. We started the week with peace in the valley. And a couple days later, Republicans and Democrats were at each other's throats. Just another week in politics. <laughs> so we start off Monday with a bill signing ceremony over at the governor's mansion. Republican leadership from the General Assembly there. Both parties, the governor is signing Medicaid expansion into law. Mm-hmm. A lot of celebrating. You said you walked by there. It looked like uh, what, 400 people there? Yeah, it looked like everyone that we would be funding with Medicaid expansion was on the lawn. <laughs> right. <laughs> All whatever, 500, 600,000 of them. Yeah, I saw a couple dozen pins on the governor's desk and the photographs I saw. It looks like he was signing his name one letter at a time and handing out pins to everyone involved. Then Tuesday rolls around. And it was all about sports gambling. That bill had been heard in committees the week prior. This week, it was slated for a vote on the House floor. And... We saw a lot of debate, and we saw a lot of amendments. Tuesday, there were eight amendments, and on Wednesday, there were nine amendments. So a total of 17 amendments all got voted down on the House floor. And because it is a fiscal bill, it had to be voted on two separate days, which is why it was Tuesday and Wednesday. Representative Jason Sane, who has been shepherding the bill in the House, he's been teaming up with Representative Zach Hawkins. We talked about that last week. And it was a noticeable floor strategy that I think was very effective. We talked about it when we were watching the debate. Yeah, a lot of the amendments, or maybe all of the amendments, were from Democrats. And after a couple amendments had gone down, they then turned to Representative Hawkins to get up and ask folks not to vote for amendments. Yeah. A little rumor around the building is that Representative Hawkins did catch a little flack from his caucus for being that buffer between the Democrats offering amendments and them being turned down. As we said last week, last year, this failed by one vote on the House floor. This year, they were right. The numbers were a lot stronger. The House vote ended up being 64-45, with both Democrats and Republicans voting for and Democrats and Republicans voting against. In between that Tuesday and Wednesday, we had a vote on a veto override. This is the pistol permit system that we talked about last week. Now, as we were adjourning the House on Tuesday afternoon, Speaker Moore underscored the House would come back into session on Wednesday morning at 930. And he said, we will be voting on the pistol permit veto override. By the way, the veto had come over from the Senate, from the Senate special messenger Mm -hmm. that they had overridden that veto on Tuesday. Now, they have the votes there. It's a clear supermajority on the Senate side. Was partisan. Very much so. Uh, No Democrats voted for that on the Senate side. And the rumors begin to circulate on the House side. What's going to happen? We come back in Wednesday morning, 930. Very punctual start there for the House. And as promised by Speaker Moore, the veto override vote is before the legislators. But when it started, what was noticeable was that Representative 
Destin Hall announced that they would move the question. We talked about that parliamentary procedure. That is a floor vote to cut off all debate. And that means we are moving to the question before the House. The question is, do we want to override the veto or do we not? Now, that procedure prompts a three-minute kind of rebuttal that the House Minority Leader gets and the House Majority Leader gets. But that does not apply on veto overrides. Representative Robert Reeves, the Democratic leader, wanted to make a three-minute case for why there should be a vote against overriding the veto. At that point, the Speaker gaveled him down and the vote was taken. Yeah. And within seconds, the governor's first veto override since 2018 Mm -hmm. is now in the books. Purchasing a gun without a sheriff's approval is now the law. There's also the allowance of guns at churches, even if they do have a school associated with that church. By the way, guns cannot be in the church when schools are in session. So we're talking about basically Sunday. And then, of course, there's the safe storage awareness campaign that is also in the bill. So we should note that it was a party line vote, but there were only 117 members present for this vote. At the adjournment of the House, or I should say they went into recess, a lot of attention started getting focused on the three Democrats that were absent, Representative Trisha Cotham, Representative Michael Ray, Representative Cecil Brockman. Now, we all know, or many of us know, that Representative Cotham, she has COVID, and she's had long-haul COVID for a couple years now. So she said she's getting her treatment uh, on Wednesday morning. She had a doctor's appointment. Uh, Representative Brockman had to go to urgent care. Representative Ray said he had a family emergency come up. It really did make for a very toxic Twitter uh, yesterday, and we all saw it. Some of it, by the way, I'd say much of it was embarrassing to say that uh, folks were being attacked personally. Yeah. Not that you expect Twitter <laughs> to be anything but a cesspool after votes like this. These conversations, I'm sure, will continue in the NC poll world. Some of us thought that that vote, which was sandwiched in between the two sports wagering votes Tuesday, and then they came back Wednesday afternoon to handle sports wagering, we thought, wow, are there going to be any repercussions here? But the vote seemed to stick into third reading, and of course now sports wagering is off to the Senate. So if Medicaid signed into law and sports wagering and veto overrides wasn't enough, we end the week with a nearly $30 billion House budget. Well, after the House session, sports wagering passes the House. The budget leaders and Speaker Moore hold a press conference and unveil what is their House budget proposal. It was like, what, four o'clock Wednesday, and then the budget was posted online. A lot of raises out there for state employees, teachers, public school workers. We know that the General Assembly has said investing in their workforce was a priority that seemed to show up prominently in this House version of the budget. They did invest more in some 
categories of employees. So teachers got a big raise, bigger raise than state employees. They did invest in bus drivers. We all know the shortage that's going on out there. If you have kids in the public schools, you know you've been driving your kid to school lately. State Highway Patrol, I think they had the biggest take at 11% raise. And of course, when we say these numbers, they're over two years. So 11% raise for a highway patrol is 5.5% each year. The budget also included some policy provisions. That's something we've been talking about. What policy is going to be in the budget that may be a harder pill for the governor to swallow? Now, if you were being strategic, you maybe wouldn't put those sort of poison pills in the first draft that you put out there. But there were a couple of things that were policy portions of the budget that I'm guessing Governor Cooper wouldn't like so much. One of those would be prohibiting any state funding going towards abortion services and then increasing the funding for pregnancy crisis centers and the human coalition. There was also a provision about making the State Bureau of Investigation a true independent agency. Right now, it has a director that is appointed by the governor, but that director acts independently. Now, we had an oversight hearing this week in the House, where some allegations were made by the current director saying that he felt political pressure to hire certain folks, bring them on staff. He said he had a lawyer that was kind of given to him by the governor's administration, and he felt like he could not trust her. So this provision is to take the SBI, make it independent, its own standalone. They do their own hiring and firing and will not be a part of the Department of Public Safety in any way whatsoever. Whether this provision makes it in the final budget or not, let's go back to Monday when we're signing Medicaid into law. They seem to have them over a barrel here, Sky. Yeah, and you and I talked about that, the celebratory bill signing on Monday backed him more into a corner. Because Medicaid expansion is tied to the enactment of a final budget. So to veto the budget is to veto the governor's top priority, Medicaid expansion. In this week's update as to who is running for statewide office in 2024, we had another announcement. Saturday, Treasurer Dale Falwell, a Republican, made his announcement to the Forsyth County GOP Convention, which is his home county, by the way, that he will be a candidate for governor in 2024. He is the first Republican to announce his candidacy for governor. We know that Mark Robinson, our current lieutenant governor, will be making a similar announcement April 22nd at the Ace Speedway. We talked about that last week, but it appears we will have a primary for governor. We also got some news, Sky, this week that a prominent House member, chair of the Finance Committee, announced that he is looking at running for state treasurer, which would take the place of Dale Falwell. That is Representative John Bradford from Mecklenburg County. We've had him on the podcast. He's a great guy. And I believe if he does get in that race, he will make a formidable candidate. A little sad news this week. We learned that longtime serving Senator David Hoyle, 
who stepped down from the General Assembly in 2010, died this past weekend in his home county of Lincoln County. Senator Hoyle was a conservative Democrat, powerful Democrat. There really wasn't a tax he didn't want to cut. Uh, He stepped down in 2010 and became the Secretary of Revenue for Governor Beverly Perdue. Our condolences to the Hoyle family and to everyone in Lincoln County he represented in the General Assembly. So over the past couple of weeks, Brian and I have had the opportunity to really learn about a new member, and that is Dr. Tim Reeder, Representative Reeder. And he came on the podcast to sort of talk about how he wasn't really political, but he's here now. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Representative Tim Reeder. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's very exciting. Tell us about your district. Where is your district and why do you think your district's special? So I am in Pitt County, Southern Pitt County, District 9. And I know everybody who comes on the show says their district is special. And of course, mine is the most special of all. And it is sort of a bedroom community of Greenville. Covers most of the Winterville, which is really mostly residential towns of Aden and Grifton, and then a big, huge um, swath of rural farming. A couple of towns, but a lot of rural area. And what makes it special, obviously, are the people. It's just a great district, great people, hardworking. A lot of growth in the area. There is, which is good. I know in the east, there's growth in Pitt County, and there's growth on the coast, but everywhere in between is really struggling. And we have some towns in Pitt County that are also very much struggling. And one of the things when I got into this, I knew that there was this challenge in rural areas and and we talk about the democrat and republican divide but the rural urban is as deep probably Um, and so we share probably more with Asheville in the western part of the state than we do issues and problems in raleigh and charlotte but it's so important that area to the rural areas i grew up in duplin county Mm -hmm. you went to greenville for the serious stuff when it came to medical care, seeing doctors, seeing specialists. That, that's a big part of that economy, right? It is. And, and one of the things when we talk about economic development, we have had times where towns in rural areas in the same county are fighting over different resources. Right. And, and we got in the way of ourselves. And we need to be thinking more regional because if in Pitt County, if something happens good in Grifton or Aden or Falkland, that's good for the whole county. We're not that big of a county. Right. So five miles isn't that far away. And so I think the way I think about representing the district and the region, we we think need to think more holistically than just about my little area. Before we started recording, I asked you if you preferred to be called Dr. Reader, Representative Reader. You are a doctor. What made you want to get into politics? I, I get that a lot, and I and and so I always ask people, which answer do you want? The truth, the <laughs> political answer. So I'll, I'll give you all of those. In the the truth and, and the real answer is that in my nature, I want to fix things and think about systems that are broken and not working. And and I saw in the patients that I took care of in the emergency department the failures of our society. 
the problems with lack of education or violence or drugs or mental health, all of that I see every day when I work in the emergency department and, and I can patch people up, but what, if we're going to get a different outcome, we have to do something different with the system. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that I had some knowledge and some abilities and I said, this is what I want to do. And, 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 and we can talk about the whole series of events that led me here, but fundamentally it was about the ability to, to have a bigger, wider impact. And it's similar to the reason why I teach. So when I take care of a patient, you impact that patient, that family, which is great. And I love taking care of patients. I'll be doing it this weekend. But if you can teach somebody and impart that knowledge to a student or a learner, they're going to carry that on to their practice, their families. And so the magnitude is just much broader. And so that's intellectually and, and that and emotionally, that's just a really cool thing to do. Yeah, sort of the micro and macro levels. Yeah, you know, the analogy of you throw the pebble in the, in the pond, right? And, you, and those ripple waves. And, and I am confident that I've taught things to medical students 20 years ago that they're using today. And, and, and they've probably now I've been doing this a while. They've probably taught that to someone else. And so that's that's really just a fun, fun thing. So we have a listener, Sue Ann Forrest Swift, and she really talks so highly of you and said that maybe she shares some of the blame for you actually filing for office. Yeah. So the, so the story, you want the story of how yeah. I, how, yeah. how I really yeah. got involved. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not from Ohio. Um, I was born in, or I was born in Ohio, moved to North Carolina in 98 and joined the faculty at ECU. And I was working on my career, teaching and seeing patients. I got very involved in the medical society and Sue Ann was a lobbyist there. I was on our board and I was the president in, in 2019. And so I got to see very much how medical and health policy was made. When I was in North Carolina, I actually went to Chapel Hill and got an MPH degree, Master of Public Health, and it was in health policy. So way back when, I didn't realize that this was where it would come from. So I had thought about it, and at the time, my district was mostly Chris Humphrey. So it was something I had thought about, and I had really discounted. I'm an introvert. I said, there's no way I'm going to go into politics. And so I get a phone call October 25th, so Monday night from Perrin Jones. He was former representative was defeated and it was like nine 30 at night. And I know Perrin, but not super well. So I ignored it. I said, Oh, he's going to, he's running for office. He's looking for money. So I didn't answer him. <laughs> so he texted, text me and, and he says, reader, I really need to talk to you. I'm sorry, Perrin, if you're hearing this. Um, and, and I thought, Oh, something's blown up at the hospital. He's an anesthesiologist. So I call him back and he said, Hey, I want to talk about politics. I'm like, crap, you got me. <laughs> and he, I said, are you running? You want money? He said, no, no, I want you to run. And I was, I was really floored because this, I was looking for a different career choice, not choice. I was looking for a different sort of, I call it a side hustle, mm -hmm. you know? And so we talked a little bit and I had a couple of questions and I was floored. So the mm -hmm. next day I, my phone blows up from the medical society and, and they're talking me into it. And, and so I put a call to Sue Ann and she answers the phone and she says, Dr. Reader, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I said, Sue Ann, what do you mean? And she said, well, I was the one that put your name in to run for office. And that's how the process got started on, you know, October 25th of 2019. Of all the things I was considering doing, politics was not anywhere on the list. And would you say that this side hustle has now turned into more than a side hustle? Probably a little bit more than the other side hustles I've had. And, and when I say side hustle, it's really not about making money on the side because you know, clearly we're making fortune up here, <laughs> but I always took care of patients. I always taught, I always did research, but 
I was involved in our homeless shelter for a decade. So that mm-hmm. was a side hustle for a number of years. Or I was involved in metal, medical politics on the medical society. And that was the, the side hustle. And I'll use air quotes. It was something that was intellectually stimulating that was outside of patient care that, that was just something fun and interesting to do. We, we talk about with our professional development, every five years, you ought to think about what it is that you're doing for your job. And is it still what you like and what you want? And, and this whole 24 years since I've been in North Carolina, I've worked for the university, I've taken care of patients and done these things. But I've always had something else on the side that really was that stimulating thing that, that kept me going. And, and so is this more work than some of my other side hustles? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we're uh, two months into it, so mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure it out. Did they tell you when they asked you to run that you were stepping into ground zero for the priorities of the House Republican caucus? Um, no. And, 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 <laughs> and, and, and there's, there's one person, I've, and I won't call him out, but there was one person when I was trying to make the decision um, who lied to me. And I love him dearly. Um, and I won't tell you what he lied to me about, but we joke about it. Not in a bad way. But um, mm. I, I didn't realize what I was getting into. When the the lines were drawn, this was going to be a 4% Republican district. Mm. I knew it was going to be competitive. It, and I, I didn't at the time really know what that meant, but it was going to be 4% Republican. So that was good for me. I'm a Republican, obviously. But then when the Supreme Court redrew the lines, it became a Democrat, some are 1%, 2%, which in a competitive district, four or five point swing is huge. And, and by that time, I was committed. I had taken people's money. And so I, I was in it. It was way more work than I anticipated I think Um, but I in my life if I'm going to commit to something I'm going to work really hard and so we worked our tails off having no idea what I was getting into right intellectually you know that there's an industry for campaigns I didn't know any of that and so I jumped in and and luckily I had some really great friends who helped me through the process but but even the decision to run it was it was crazy. Um, when we, when I was talking that first week, I get the call on the, the 25th, which was the, the Monday night. When I was talking to other people, hey, I've been approached. What do you think? And and even Perrin Jones said, you have to make this decision fast. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. Well, on day two, like Tuesday when I'm talking to people, I said, oh, no, you have to make the decision this week. And I said, oh, you're joking. And they said, oh, no, no, this week. If you don't, they're going to start looking for somebody else. And so this is a life-changing decision. And so talked to the wife who was incredibly supportive in this whole process. And when I talked to her, I said, you know, this is what, you know, what do you think? And this is going to uproot us and, and there's going to be nastiness and negativity. And she said, I'm there, I'll support mm-hmm. you. And I said, she's not ready to have a conversation yet. Mm-hmm. And so that was day three or day two, one. And so it came back a couple you know, days later and I said, no, this is one of those really serious conversations we have to have. And she said, no, I'm, I'm in it with you. Mm-hmm. There's no question. So during the campaign and the whole process, you know, Rhonda, who my wife, lovely, has, has just been there for me the whole time. First hit piece on you. What did you think? Uh, um, so I got, I got some good hit pieces. And, and um, <laughs> Did you recognize yourself? <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is one thing. So I, that was a concern when you try to make this decision in all this time pressure. And I knew that they were coming. And, and I had emotionally and mentally prepared for that. What I, I didn't appreciate and didn't recognize that Rhonda, my wife, it was harder on her, actually. Yeah, it usually um, is. And, and, and that's as I've talked to other legislators. It, it is very much. And, and she is 
uber protective. Right. Mm-hmm. So she was like, I'm going to go track them down. I'm going to their <laughs> office. I'm like, no, honey, you, you can't do that. And so, you know, there was somebody who, who came at me pretty good and, and she, she, you know, they're not hard to find on. She said, Oh, I know that they, they work right here. I'm going to their office. I'm like, no, honey, you can't do that. Um, so it, it, I was prepared for it. It, it wasn't hard until about the last month of the campaign. Then it, then it sort of got a little, yeah. little chippy as they say. So you said something earlier about treating patients and yeah. just the different things that you see in a day-to-day basis. Talk to us a little bit about what does your regular day job look like, a normal day? In the legislature or in the emergency department? Emergency <laughs> department. I, I've said this, that the emergency department is probably the most predictable part of my life. Really? And people say that can't possibly be true. And, and it is. And, and the way I reason I say that is when I'm in the emergency department, I know what the patients are there for. Right, they're they're in pain, they're suffering, they're looking for a diagnosis. I've got that. When I'm going to administrative meetings or when I'm in a legislative hearing, everybody has agendas, and, and you have no idea. And so that's what makes it very unpredictable. With patients, um, you you sort of know why they're there. And so a typical day. So this weekend, tomorrow, I'm going to be in the children's emergency department. So we show up, and in most everybody's been in the emergency department, and it's somewhat like TV, but we're not nearly as pretty and, and there's not nearly as much um, playing around as in real life. The, the patient comes in, the, the nurse takes some information, we take a history, we order tests, we give medicines, we make diagnoses, we do the treatments, all the things that you typically think about. So that's my day job when I'm taking care of patients. About 40% of my time right now, I'm seeing patients. The other time I'm a, an administrator in our department and on faculty, and then I, I do some education and some research. In between legislative sessions here, you know, I'm trying to recruit some faculty. We're working on how do we deal with changes in our billing system? How do we deal with the finances? So all of those things are sort of swirling around my brain, and, and they, they come together a lot. So when we are talking about Medicaid expansion and the impact on hospitals and payments and, and access to care, I see that in my real world. I've taken care of a patient who we've admitted to the hospital multiple times, very sick, because she, she can't afford her medication that's not that expensive and so when she gets discharged from the hospital she gets 30 day supply and then about 45 days from now she runs out she gets really sick and here she comes back in and she i i believe when we expand medicaid she will qualify for that and so we're going to provide her a medicine that costs a couple hundred dollars a month and we're going to prevent thousands of dollars of medical admission bills because she's now got access Mm -hmm. and so that's how i see the work in the legislature, improving the system to make it easier to take care of patients. Tell us a little bit about your life. And you said you came here in 1998. So you were born in Ohio. Yep. Sounds like you came here for school. No, I, I, I'm older than I look. I went to Ohio State for undergraduate medical school and residency. So okay. I was a lifelong um, Buckeye. And, and I joke with people, I was there before it was the Ohio State oh, University. Right. Okay. That, that, that came later. Um, so finished up my training in 98 and I was looking for a job. I love Ohio. My family's still there, but I was looking for someplace warmer. I'd been there my whole career. A lot of people in Ohio vacation in North Carolina because it's a 10 hour drive. It's not Florida. It's the beaches are here. And so we had come down here. So I, I was looking for a position in North Carolina and I wanted to go back to graduate school and get my master's of public health. Not that I wanted to run a health department, but I was looking for those skills and training like an MBA. But instead of talking about widgets, we were going to talk about CAT scanners and hospitals and physicians. And in Chapel Hill at the time, and they still do have a fabulous public health school. 
And so I was interviewing with private emergency medicine groups to come to North Carolina. Never heard of ECU, never knew anything about it, saw an ad and cold called him and said, hey, you know, I, I need some time to go to grad school. What do you think? And, and, and Nick Benson was the chair at the time said, yeah, we can make it work. Come on down. And so here I came in 98, drove to North Carolina. And here I am. Never thought I'd still be here 24 years later, but North Carolina is just a, a fabulous place. We were at the beach several years ago. My parents were down visiting. We're outside some restaurant and in some, we were just chatting and, and they asked my parents, where are you from? They said, oh, Ohio and chatted about that. And they looked at me and I said, well, Ohio by birth, but North Carolina by choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That did not make mom happy. Oh. <laughs> mom, I think was still holding out hope that I was coming home. Oh, that's so, sweet. Yeah. You said you were involved in your local homeless shelter. Where did that come from? Is that part of, you see that as a tie-in with your medical work? At the time, a good friend of mine was on the homeless shelter board, and they were looking for people who were willing to give time and energy and and probably money at the time. And so he invited me on the board, and and it really resonated with me. I I have a a deep sort of passion to help other people. And so it, it was a great, great 10 years. And and I'm still listed as an emeritus board member. And I think okay. it's still because I keep giving them money and they, you know, I haven't been to board meeting, but, but that work was great. But it was funny. We would talk about them at the homeless shelter, the clients, and we would use the term patients in the emergency department. And it was the same people. Right. I mean, I knew when I looked at their address, oh, 207 Manhattan Avenue, that's the homeless shelter. So this is someone who's staying at the homeless shelter. And, and I didn't realize before I got involved with it. Even in Greenville, it was big. We had close to 100 people a night who were homeless in the little town of Greenville. And, and that didn't even capture everybody. Wow. So, so that was, again, my opportunity to give back to the community. So when you were growing up in Ohio, did you know that you wanted to be a physician? What were you like as a kid? Um, we'll have to go back to mom and ask. Um, <laughs> get her on the phone. Yes. Uh, <laughs> she'll hopefully she'll listen to this and not get too upset. I, I was a normal kid. I went to Catholic high schools and I was involved in sports and music and so normal kind of things. I don't think I was that different from everybody else. I know now, or I, I realize it now that the foundation that my parents gave me was very much about good, solid education of study hard, learn, go to school, we didn't have to be disciplined because just the what they set for us is you're going to get an education, you're going to go forward. Um, I thought I wanted to be a fireman that sort of early on in my life. And it, it's, that's where I thought. And again, it's that idea of service. And then as I was going through school and realized that I had some aptitude and some skills that, that I could aspire to medical school. And and my mom's a nurse um, by by training. Um, and so I, we, we would get done with school. We would walk to her, the doctor's office waiting. We lived out in the country. So we would walk to the doctor's office where she worked and then we would go home with her. So I, I don't know if that answered, but mm-hmm. that's, that's where it came from. And then just, I, I enjoyed sciences and, and, and the, the linkage between sciences and helping people. That's where health is. That's where medicine is. And so that's yeah. what came to me. Did you consider yourself very political? I know you're a Republican. You identify as, I'm sure, as a conservative, but mm-hmm. were you following the General Assembly? No. Okay. So I naively thought that there was, and there is, a linkage between politics and politics. So there, there obviously is. Politics is a different world, and I was thrown into that. Because I worked for the university, I had to jump through some steps even to run because I'm on faculty. So I'm a state employee. So that took a little bit of time. And then we were thrown into a competitive primary. And by the time I got the campaign up and running, that was probably the 1st of January. And we've got a March primary against a 
person who was on the town council who had been an elected state senator before. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about just not knowing what I was doing and we just rode the wave and jumped into it. It was wild. Intellectually now there's a, there's an industry, there's a business that does campaign. I didn't know any of that. And so you find some people and you talk to some people. And in that first week when I, even I was deciding, there was a lot of people, oh, you need to talk to this guy or mm -hmm. you need to talk to that guy. And some of those conversations were very helpful. Some of them were a little bit creepy that I also, there, I almost said, there's no way. I mean, there was a couple of conversations that because they were so political, it almost turned me off. Uh. Um, but you know, we got through it and we learned and we knocked on a thousands of doors and we killed a bunch of trees, mailing things. And, <laughs> and here I am now. Yeah. So I, I was not, you know, I, I felt followed healthcare policy, but the other parts of it and in, in the deep political world, I was not engrossed in. So you're two months in, as you noted earlier, and every day at the legislature, something pops up. You described yourself as an introvert. How have you adjusted or maybe enjoyed the pace and the new atmosphere of yeah. the legislature? So I'm getting, I'm still getting used to the pace and I'm reassured because I, like a lot of the freshmen, we have been struggling to keep up and we were in a, a dinner the other night and one of the very senior members said the pace that we're going at this session is unlike anything that they've been a part of. And so that gave me reassurance because I was... I can't keep up with all this stuff. I'm, yeah. I'm not a dumb person and I'm trying to read, but I can't keep up. So, but I enjoy that pace in emergency medicine. My attention span is, is very short. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like a squirrel. And so sometimes sitting in meetings for hours upon hours, that's hard for me. So I, I like that different pace. And what's intellectually really stimulating is just learning about all the different issues. The week before last, for whatever reason, we had meetings with legislator or about power and about sewer and water. And I learned more about water treatment plants in the last two weeks than I've ever considered. So, so that's been really fun getting to know that is an introvert. I, I used to think that extroverts were you know outgoing and they just loved all this. And in introverts were in what I've come to understand, it's where people get their energy. And so extroverts get their energy by meeting a bunch of people and going to cocktail parties. And they, that just gives them energy. Introverts like me, we get our energy when we can go into ourselves and we can think and be thoughtful and do things. And so I, I force myself to be an extrovert when I have to, and I have to do that in my day job sometimes. And so it, it, it was, it was, that was a consideration of, can I do this? Um, so, and I forget one of the representatives you had on the show sometime last year, and he was talking about being an introvert and, and it struck me. I said, okay, you can be a politician and be an introvert at the same time. I don't know if I answered your yeah. question. It was a long, sometimes I'm getting to be a better politician. I learned to just keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about all the subjects you're learning about. You're one of a few in the General Assembly. I think Dr. Baker, Kristen Baker, Representative Baker from Comparis County is also a medical doctor. Yep. It is a place that values knowledge and expertise. And then we do have a few nurses and nurse practitioners as well, but are you finding that folks are looking to you for answers? I, I, yes. I yeah. think the short answer is one of the things that, that I've been struck with when coming up here, and, and I, I teach policy and advocacy to students, and, and I've done it for physicians. We have to rely on the expertise of others when we're up here. 
agriculture is the most important industry in Pitt County. And I asked to be on agriculture and I didn't get put on that committee partly because there's a bunch of farmers Mm -hmm. and I want to learn about that because it's important to my district, but I would slow them down. And so we have to rely on the other members in their expertise. So I'm never going to be as knowledgeable about farming as Jimmy Dixon, right? So I can go to him and say, help me understand why this is important. And, And I'm hopeful that I will be that for other members about health care and health policy. And, and I think that I, I, I hopeful that they'll see that in me. Yeah. Uh, and you're right. There's, there's two of us, Representative Baker, mm-hmm. who's a psychiatrist from Concord and sure. I, after me and my wife, I think Representative Baker was probably most excited about me getting up here. Yeah. Um, we were joking that now we've, we've doubled the doctor caucus. And so, <laughs> so now we can have dinners with, as a caucus and we can, we can meet people and call ourselves a caucus because there's two of us. So since you listened to the show, you know you were going to get this question. Yeah. If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our politics, what would it be? It's time for the question. It, yeah. It's funny. All of us sort of say, well, this is the struggle. Yeah. Right? We talked about this last week. I've been thinking about it. If I had the magic wand, I would make us have authentic, real conversations about these difficult problems that we're facing. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think from a societal standpoint I'm worried about is we used to, it seems like we used to be able to have conversations. And when we disagreed, we could disagree, but we didn't have to be disagreeable. And it, and it wasn't that I disagree with you and you're an evil person and I hate you. And, and I worry that, especially on the national, you know, the national standpoint and in the national media, it encourages that divisiveness. And so if I had the magic wand, it would force us society as legislators to have difficult conversations about those difficult topics so we could fix them. Are you having some of these conversations? Are you, have you been able to try to engage some of your colleagues, maybe on the other side of the aisle, about tough issues? So we have. One of the nights, there was 24 of us freshmen so that started just on the House side. And, and two of them weren't really freshmen. They were here before, then okay. they, but they, they came to the orientation. And so one of the things that we, we oriented together, so I got to meet other freshmen from the other side of the aisle, which was really helpful. We had another, we had a social event a couple of weeks ago. We're having one next week, again, to get us out of that difficult conversations. And, and one, it's really hard to have a bad conversation, call somebody names if you know who they are and their spouse and what their pet's name is. Right. Right? You can't, you know, say you're a jerk. Oh, and how's, how's, you know, how's your dog this week? Mm-hmm. So, so I think encouraging and figuring out ways with which to do that. One of the things that because of the pace that's been difficult, we have had, zero time to do things outside of just trying to keep up. And so I think that's where I'm struggling with is where do we create time to have those, some of those conversations, both in the legislature, but, but probably more importantly out in our communities. I mean, we need as a, as a society and as communities in a state, we, we need to engage somehow in that conversation. Well, representative Tim reader, we appreciate everything you are doing in North Carolina politics, your willingness to serve in the North Carolina House. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much. And, and Sue Ann talked to me about this podcast w- really when I was first getting in. And she said, "Here, you need to listen to them. And so I've been listening to you guys for two years now. Oh, wow. and, and, and I really appreciate that you guys 
came to me because I was I was secretly hoping that you were going to invite <laughs> me on. So not not to not to blow you up so much, but 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 I appreciate it because I, I I like what you're doing and I like the whole concept of doing politics better. I think it's important for all of us. Thank you, sir. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Elephant in the room. When you and I first met Representative Reader, he brought it up. He says, I know you guys really liked Brian Farkas. And we do. And we still do. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, he is a great guy. I like him too. All politics society is a great guy. We were talking to another lobbyist about this. You can like two people, even, <laughs> <laughs> even if they run against each other. And we did have a lot of admiration, still do, uh, of Brian Farkas. But wow, Representative Reader, getting to know him has been so fun. I have enjoyed spending time with him inside the building, outside the building. A really great guy. In Pitt County, you really were fortunate last November. You had two very good candidates to choose from. And you sent a good one to Raleigh. And we appreciate Dr. Reeder spending time with us. Thank you, Dr. Reeder, for coming on the podcast. We look forward to working with you some more this session. Tweet of the Week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from Caroline Craig David, great last name, Mm -hmm. at Caroline C. David, and her tweet is, If you see me double fisting monster energy drinks, no you didn't. Hashtag budget season, hashtag ncpool. It's a marathon, not a sprint. (laughs) And then that last mile, which is sitting through a day of appropriations committee meetings, hearing kind of the top line highlights of the budget, and then you go through the amendment process. And then once you do that in appropriations, you go to the House floor and you have a couple days of the same debate, the amendments and everything. It really is tedious. And after a while, you might need to get a monster drink or a cup of coffee or something like that. Or alcoholic drink. (laughs) Right. That happens too. So... I took a look at this bill that was filed today. We're recording on Thursday afternoon. And there was a tweet about this that I considered for tweet of the week as well. But the bill is Senate Bill 430, and it is titled Eliminate Participation Trophies. Now, what the bill does is it prohibits a local government from giving awards to participants based solely on participation of sports or other activities. I love that bill. Me too. I think there should be winners and losers. That's what life is about. <laughs> right. Right. Who introduced the bill? Senators Moffat, Settle, and Hannig. All about it. Yeah. So after college, I coached baseball 
gosh, for years, even before I had kids. I, I was living in Mebane, North Carolina, and I took a team. We were the Five Star Sluggers. Five Star LLC was our sponsor. And we didn't do really well at all. Like, I think we maybe played 500 baseball that year. And the end of the year party was up to you as the coach. So we had a pool party. And I remember the kids were like, well, where's our trophy? And I said, you know, you're not getting one. We didn't win anything. We didn't, you know, we got knocked out of the tournament in the first round. We didn't win half of our games in the regular season. And I got a lot of parents telling me how disappointed they were that I didn't order trophies for the kids. Now, what we did do is we had a baseball and everyone signed everyone's baseball. And I thought that would be okay because, you know, you want to remember something to put up on the dresser or maybe you want to play baseball with it. But a couple years later, as the kids got older, because I had a very young team, we did win the Mebane Town Championship, went to the county tournament. You got a trophy then. Makes sense. You know, I'm a major grudge holder. Mm -hmm. This is taking me back to when I was in eighth grade. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, let's just say I didn't have a superb attitude when playing sports. Oh, I've heard about this. But this, we were about to win our regional championship. Uh And there were a group of girls on my team that were going to an Usher concert in St. Louis. You know, back (laughs) at this time, Usher is top notch, okay? Not me, didn't get invited. But you know, (laughs) that's another story. Uh But pop up, hit to left field, easy out, we win the game, right? She drops the ball throws the ball into the other team's dugout. They score. They beat us. Her name is Dana Frederick, and I will not let it go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What were you referring to? Oh, getting kicked out of games? Yeah, you got kicked out of a lot of games, didn't you? Yeah. Sometimes I get worked up. I would look over. My mom would already be packing her chair. (laughs) Yeah. She knew it was our time. I was was about to get thrown out. I have a better attitude about life now. (laughs) I don't think I've ever been kicked out of a game. I was a part of a situation where one of my baseball coaches got kicked out of a game. I played in a league as a kid where it's kind of a rough league. Like, you know, kids were, you know, mouthing off a lot to umpires. And so Mm -hmm. we had this rule that when you went up to the plate, you had to salute the umpire. (laughs) Okay. And if you didn't, it was a strike one. What? Yeah, yeah. So we're starting the game off. I was leading off, and I go up. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I I give my salute, and he goes, strike one, you didn't salute me. So I had this old coach. His name was Woody Woodington. Coach Woody. (laughs) That sounds fake. (laughs) No. Josiah Woodington was his real name, but we called him Coach Woody. Okay. And uh, man, he he's an old man too. Like he would sit in the dugout and chain smoke cigarettes, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, he comes out, he's like throwing every cuss word. I saw him salute. All of this. this is back before iPhones. They threw Coach Woody out of the game. Wow. Yeah. And so he went over to the other side of the fence and just mouthed off the whole <laughs> game. That's amazing. It was amazing. I thought they, when you were thrown out of games, you couldn't be like right there. Well, it was a city park, right? Okay. So he was not in the baseball confines. <laughs> not from my personal experience. Right. 
<laughs> so they make you get out of the parking lot, like go home. You could go sit in like the car. <laughs> yeah. Well, Coach Woody didn't give us participation trophies either. <laughs> so participation trophies, it has me thinking about something else. Okay. You know, Representative Jason Sane is the chair of the House Budget Committee. Yeah. I think in the spirit of participation trophies, there should be the $32 billion budget that's the actual budget. But he should also fund projects in the metaverse, like fund parks and schools, and teachers get raises that are 30% in the metaverse. That's called the governor's budget. (laughs) (laughs) All right, with that, I think we just... Take us out. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we're a little slap-happy this week. It's been a long week. (laughs) But... Next week, we'll be bringing you the updates on the House budget, what's going on in the Senate as well. We're sure there will be news. And between now and then, keep up with us. Let us know what you'd like to hear. We have a lot of new guests coming on that we think folks will be excited about. Send us any tips, any unsubstantiated rumors. We're happy to hear them. But in the meantime, go outside, enjoy your friends and family, and remember to do politics better.